according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him at peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Numbers. Let me get my notes up and running here. Remind myself where we are and what we're doing. This is day 64 in the Through the Bible calendar. Tonight we need to cover Numbers chapter 14 and 15. Well, that should go pretty easily. It's just two quick chapters and call it a night. Numbers chapter 14 and 15. We left off with the spies that had gone into the land, and uh, ten of them were, uh, were terrified. And uh, two of them had the faith to realize that the giants that they saw there were not an obstacle to God uh, fulfilling his promises. When God makes promises and God knows about these things ahead of time and he knows what he's doing and he has the omnipotence to, uh, to deal with what his omniscience knows he has to deal with. And so uh, it's just, you know, kind of sad when a human being comes along and just gets so wrapped up in fear and so wrapped up in human viewpoint that even just basic things like the omnipotence of God are just totally lost and uh, lost to their way of thinking. So anyway, of course, can't be too judgmental. We, I do the same thing. We all do <laughs> related to that. All right. Well, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Before we start studying the word of God tonight, let's humble ourselves before his throne of grace. Let's bow for a moment of silent prayer and prepare ourselves for eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again tonight, thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. And we call upon your faithfulness, Father, to bless our time of study, to set aside distractions, to hedge us about and protect us from anyone that would want to come in here and bring us to harm or stop what we're doing. Father, I just thank you again for how faithful you are to keep this uh, Through the Bible series up and running. Uh, The technology, Father, and all the details. Uh, There's a thousand things that can go wrong every night. And yet uh, you keep it all running, Father, so we just thank you for being faithful. We commit to you our time tonight, Father. Humble us and teach us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we pick up right where we left off, the propaganda of the ten faithless spies. You know, you got to stop it. You can't let them keep keep discouraging the people, because that's all they were doing was just discouraging the people. The propaganda from the ten faithless spies launches an organized rebellion on the part of Israel. So take a look at the first four verses here of Numbers chapter 14. Uh, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land, to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. All right. And there's about 20 stupid things that are in those four verses right there. If we were to take the time and just chart them all out, list them all out, it would be hilarious and sad at the same time. But the idea is that that, that God brought them here to kill them. How dumb is that? You know, if God wanted to kill them, any of the ten plagues in Egypt could have killed him if he wanted to kill them. He could have dropped the Red Sea on top of them while they were walking through on dry ground, or he could have let them starve to death in the wilderness, but no, he sent them manna. And the whole idea that he's bringing them here so that the giants could kill them, it just seems uh, you know, crazy. But then again, when you're dealing with carnality and you're dealing with fear, uh, you're not exactly encountering a rational process, are you? And so trying to understand it rationally is a non-starter. Just understand it's spiritual. Understand it's carnality, it's darkness, and pray over it. And, if, and then you may have the opportunity to, to win a brother or to win a sister if uh, God calls you to come alongside and, and pr- uh, proclaim truth to some of these people that are uh, spouting all of this darkness. And that's what Moses and Aaron are going to do. That's what Joshua and Caleb are going to do. Human viewpoint sees no solution to the problem, and so it goes into an emotional reaction. And that's all that happens, because you're not processing doctrine, you're not thinking with divine viewpoint, and because you can't see an answer, all you can do then is just grumble about all the problems and how there is no solution. 
uh, obviously if you can't see it, it must not exist, right? That's the, that's the process. Human viewpoint wants to blame somebody and find fault. And of course Moses and Aaron, they're easy targets because they're in the leadership. And, uh, and really what they're doing is they're blaming God. God's bringing them here to kill them. And since Moses and Aaron are, are God's uh, you know, flunkies, his, his right-hand men or whatnot, they're going to blame uh, they're going to blame Moses and Aaron in uh, in this process. Human viewpoint assumes that God is out to get them, and I know we all have that thought from time to time. Or I'll just speak for myself. Uh, we can have this idea that God is against us. Job had that idea. Moses had that idea. Several people in the scriptures get that idea that God is out to get them. Human viewpoint seeks leaders according to their own desires. And uh, we're warned about that in the church age. We're warned about that in the local church where people don't want to, where believers don't want to put up with sound doctrine. They want to have their ears tickled. And so uh, on that basis, then they accumulate to themselves teachers according to their own desires. The, uh, The leadership that will cater to what it is that they want in the first place. So I think we can understand that as well. Which gets us now to verse 5. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. So in the face of spiritual rebellion, Moses and Aaron gave their case to the Lord. And that's what we all want to do. And when, when we're encountering something like this, just stop right there and go to prayer and recognize, Father, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. There are spiritual forces at work that we can't see or comprehend. So we just stop and say, all right, Lord, this rebellion is happening, and, uh, and give it to him in prayer. See what God wants to do with it. All right. In the face of spiritual rebellion, Joshua and Caleb take a stand for God's absolute standard of righteousness. And this is, this is marvelous on their part. I mean, they, think about, you know, you have to wonder how much courage did it take, and if we're going to compare courage against courage and whatnot, um, you know, the courage on the battlefield face-to-face with a giant is one thing, but courage back at home, courage to uh, to speak up when you're in the minority, when you're getting outvoted 10 to 2, when uh, everybody thinks that what needs to happen is just to pack up and go to Egypt, and then, uh, and then two of the spies have to have the courage to step up and say, wait a minute, that's not right. And, uh, and so they have the, the courage to do this here. Um, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. And I think that's curious, because this was a, a promise on God's part to lead them into the land, but at the same time God had promised to lead them into the land, God was also giving them a very conditional covenant. A very conditional covenant filled with a lot of ifs. If this, then that. If that, then that. And, you know, uh, the obedience to the will of God would produce temporal life blessing. Defiance of the will of God would produce discipline. And I think it's smart on Caleb and, John and Joshua's part here to recognize that uh, without God's good pleasure, they can't have the victory uh, that uh, that God had told them he wanted to give them. So again, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That also communicates a tremendous amount of, I think, uh, awareness of angelic conflict realities when he said their protection has been removed from them. What, what protection is he talking about? He's not talking about the, the physical fortifications, right? Like uh, Kiriath Arba had these huge fortifications. Uh, they were still there. The walls of Jericho were still there. The physical defenses were still in place. So what defenses were taken away if not these spiritual defenses, the demonic empowerment that they had, Right? Their shadow has been removed from them. And uh, anyway, this is something I want to explore to a greater degree down the road when we start to uh, encounter more and more passages connected to angelic conflict and how many times, like, in the, the shadows are referenced. That we rest in the shadow of His wings, right? And then the protection that Lord off, the Lord offers us is called a shadow. Well, what are these shadows about? The fallen angels or the demons that, that are offering protection to, uh, to, the, uh, to the pagans. 
So we'll see some more of that. We're going to talk about that when we get to the book of Joshua, when he promises to go before them as a captain, when he promises to drive out the demonic powers even before the human beings arrive for the, uh, for the physical battle. So stay tuned for that. All right, so their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, for you and I sitting here tonight in fellowship studying the Word of God, this makes a lot of sense. This is like a no-brainer. Well, yeah, God is for us. Who can be against us? Let's go win this battle. Uh, But for them, they're not thinking with divine viewpoint. They're not in fellowship. All they're doing is cycling the, 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 uh, the darkness all over and over again, running through their list of problems and why it is that, uh, that uh, they think they're going to die. So all the congregation said to stone them with stones. <laughs> That's when you know that your message has not been received well. <laughs> when, you, when you wrap up your sermon and, and the crowd's ready to stone you. Um, so the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And okay, there's a reminder. <laughs> you know, when it starts to shine even brighter and when it starts to make its, its presence, uh, they're aware of its presence when they're outside of the temple. That's how bright that it's shining from, uh, from the tabernacle itself. All right, so this is Caleb and Joshua taking a stand. Their stand was not accepted by the people, and they faced imminent physical death. The Lord will defend those believers who faithfully stand for His righteousness. And we see this, this pattern again and again. Stand for the truth. Stand for the truth. The God of truth will uphold you. And uh, we have the promises there. All right, which gets us now to verses 11 through 19, as Moses starts to plead for the people. We are approaching, you've been waiting for it, haven't you? You know there's a point that Moses loses it. There's a point where Moses just flips his wig and he, and he, and he sins, and it's going to cost him. Okay? It's going to cost him. And, and but see, you're waiting for it. You're, you're, you're waiting for it each chapter to get there because, uh, spoiler alert, we're not there yet, but it is on the way. Okay? Pretend you don't know that's coming. All right? Just pretend we'll get there. Okay? So stay tuned. So um, the Lord tests Moses now for the second time with an opportunity to make a people and a name for himself. Remember when he did that the first time? It was back in Exodus 32. It was with the golden calf, and Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets in his hands and, and uh, smashed the tablets and did the things there. So we look at here in verses 11 through 19, and we see it's a do-over on the test. Why does God test us on a do-over if we already passed the test once? I mean, isn't that enough? Didn't we prove our, our faith and no, we, he tests it again and again and again. The circumstances are a little different. And, uh, and just because we passed it once, don't get prideful. Don't think that, oh, it's an automatic, it's an easy test again. You know, um, he, maybe the hedge is lower this time. Maybe he's, he's uh, holding you to a stricter judgment, a stricter accountability this time around. So, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I mean, no kidding. If I had, if I had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, um, you know, I'd like to think that I would not have, I would have been on Caleb and Jonathan's side, or Joshua's side of this. I would not have been on the spy's side of this. But who's to say? Maybe that's just my own pride and arrogance thinking, oh, I would never do that. Um, it's hard to, hard to imagine though. And like the Lord says, haven't they seen enough with all of God's miracles, with the, with the, the food he provides them every day, with all the, with the, uh, the, the, the pillar and the cloud and, and the fire and all of that? Evidently not. So he says, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. It's the same temptation that he was given back in Exodus 32. Just wiping this people out, starting over with Moses and uh, making a nation out of Moses. See, but Moses said to the Lord, you can't do that. Okay? Similar to his prayer back in Exodus. Then the Egyptians will hear of it. This is Moses' argumentation now. If you do this, Lord, the, the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength, you brought up this people from their midst. Then they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he's 
appealing to God's own glory, the fact that God will defend his own glory, the fact that, that this will become a, a mark against the Lord. These are what the liars are going to start talking about. If you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath before he slaughtered them in the wilderness. In other words, the accuser is going to have a grounds of accusation. He's going to say, oh, well, God, he was powerful enough to break Egypt and get him through the Red Sea, but as soon as he saw those giants in the land of Canaan, well, then that was just too much for God. He knew that he couldn't win the fight. He knew that he couldn't win the fight, so he cut his losses and fled. See, that's, that's what the accusation is going to be. And you know, honestly, we can, we can kind of get that. We can understand why the adversary would say such a thing. And, and even some of Jesus' teachings kind of point that direction too. Because he says, you know, what king is there that when he goes to battle, he doesn't first estimate his capacity. And, and, uh, and if he feels he can win, he'll go into battle. If he can't, he'll try to sue for peace. And, and Jesus taught that as a, as a parable. And he even talked about the counting the cost before you start to build a tower. You start to you know, begin an endeavor. Uh, and so there is a valid principle with that. And it will have the appearance that, uh, that, well, God was able to get him out of Egypt, but he couldn't get him into the land. And that's, uh, that's what the critics are going to say. All right, verse 17 then. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. See, in his prayer life, Moses is using God's words against him, <laughs> right? In a very sanctified way just reciting back what God himself has said, that God is slow to, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, even just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the logic on this is marvelous. I love this. It's almost like He's turning the tables on the Lord using the same kind of process. God has started off this discussion saying, haven't they seen enough miracles? Moses is now saying, haven't you been patient this far? <laughs> right? You are patient these, with all these rebellions. Why stop now? Keep being patient. You are uh, abounding in loving kindness. Anyway, I kind of like the approach. So it's a victory here for, uh, for Moses. And the Lord will say, I have pardoned them according to your word. According to. And, and, and this happens again and again and again. And, and we, we, we wrestle with it. We try to explain it. We struggle sometimes. Um, theologians will, will deny that this verse is, is even true. Okay? They, will, um, uh, they will insist, of course, that God in his omniscience knew everything ahead of time and that he, uh, he makes his sovereign choices not on the basis of any conditional things that human beings might do. But that flies in the face with what God says again and again and again, whereby his actions are indeed conditional upon our prayers, upon the things that we do and how we uh, respond to him in faith. And when he says, I have pardoned them according to your word, I accept that at face value. That had Moses not prayed for the forgiveness, then maybe the, the, uh, the response would have been different. Okay. Anyway, we'll say more on that. I think uh, that when we get into the New Testament, we'll have more and more of that. To me, which is clear as day when we were going through First uh, and Second Corinthians and seeing, uh, seeing those issues there. All right. So, um, not wanting to get ahead of my notes here. As uh, the Lord was testing Moses for this, of course he knew he wasn't going to destroy the people. He can't destroy the people. This is simply a test. The Lord promises to destroy Israel, make a new nation for Moses. It's similar to what he did back in Exodus 32. Moses passes the test as he did before, calls upon the Lord to be faithful to his unconditional covenant promises. And a uh, good example for how we in our prayer life can tell God what to do. Since Moses confessed the sins of the people, the Lord forgave them. And, you know, the idea of intercessory confession. We, we have the example of Job who is confessing the sins of his children, the unknown sins of his children, offering sacrifices on an intercessory confession basis. We have Moses' example here. I can take you to, uh, to Daniel 10 and show you where Daniel, uh, or Daniel 9 and 10, where Daniel is confessing the sins of his people. 
And uh, the idea of intercessory confession is curious to me because that's not something I grew up with. That's not something I ever heard, you know, theme teach. But I've been encountering it more and more again in different passages of Scripture and I'm starting to wonder on what basis then can a pastor be interceding for his flock? Can a father be interceding for his wife? Parents be interceding for their children? Even uh, beyond just intercessory petitions but actual intercessory confessions. And... Uh, What's the value there? Well, we see again and again, God honors it. So uh, it's got me thinking anyway. Although they're forgiven, the consequences of the rebellion will last throughout the remainder of their days. And this is such a powerful principle. It really spans verses 21 through 38. The recognition that yes, we commit a sin and yes, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you want to know what 1 John 1, nine doesn't say? It doesn't say that he will forgive us, cleanse us, and remove any future consequences. It doesn't say that. So very frequently we are forgiven, we are cleansed, but we still face the ongoing temporal discipline, the temporal consequences that, uh, you know, that our actions have led us to. And uh, the issue is there. So this is what God says. So, indeed as I live, he says, I have pardoned them, according to your word, but indeed, as I live. And this is the language of a vow. The God who cannot lie is taking a vow, and the God who cannot die is staking his life on this. As I live, declares the Lord, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. And so he's, he's putting it down now because he's, he's shown them enough, sufficient, more than sufficient. It is inexcusable, this rebellion is, uh, is going to have the consequences that it has. So this, that means that the Exodus generation will not enter into the land. The Exodus generation will not be the Isodus generation in that sense. It's going to be their children will be the ones that enter into the promised land. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which he entered and his descendants shall also take possession of it. I don't remember why I colored that, but I did a study on that a while ago. I'll remind myself later. Um, the idea of having a different spirit. Is that a human spirit? Is that a, well, what is that in the intimacy with the Lord and the uh, faith rest life standing before him? So although they're forgiven, the consequences will last through the remainder of their days. It's similar with, with David, right? It was David's adultery with Bathsheba and the consequences there. Yes, he's forgiven. He does not die the sin of the death, but there is discipline in his household for the rest of David's lifetime, and his children are a wreck. And the, the consequences there with Absalom and Tamar and, and so many things, you can see the consequences of sin that follow after. All right, so the entire generation is banned from entrance into the promised land. The children. And notice, they were the ones that were used as an excuse for not going in. You remember when they were weaseling out? Oh, our women, our children are going to be victims and whatever. Those children that were highlighted as the excuses for not going into the land, they're the ones that are going to be inheriting the land, but it's going to be 40 years from now, okay? Or 37 and a half years from now, as the case may be. Um. Only Caleb and Joshua will be permitted to live long enough and enter into the land of promise. The ten faithless spies are going to die, and we'll see that here in this chapter, dying of a plague before the Lord. And he glanced down to verse 37. Those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. Referenced in 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, the grumblers destroyed by the destroyer. All right. Now, <laughs> let's let's get to the rest of this because the the rest of this chapter is kind of funny, not funny, not funny, hilarious, funny, sad, ironic, in a tragic kind of way. 
The Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. So that's the the uh, instructions of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. So Moses had his answer already privately. Now he's getting the script. He's getting the message that he has to go and speak to the people. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. That, that military census that they took where they were numbering their armies and they were structuring their battalions and they were getting ready to go to war. God said that entire military muster, dead, okay, by the decree of God. Surely you will not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. By the way, archaeologists, uh, the archaeologists are desperately trying to find all these graves. <laughs> they would love it to find all these graves. And I think part of the problem is, is they're looking for three million graves. And uh, if, in fact, the numbers are much smaller than that, then uh, the archaeologists have to recognize that maybe they've got a tougher, tougher job of it. But um, I don't know, given how the Lord buried Moses, I'm starting to wonder if maybe, um, uh, maybe he had a hand in some of these other burials as well. I don't know. Your corpses will lie in the wilderness. Maybe uh, they were just devoured by the, the predators and the, and the carrion and the vultures and whatever else, and maybe there were no graves to, to be found if, uh, if that was the instruction of the Lord. All right. According to the number of the days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, you will know my opposition. So that correspondence is interesting, and we see this in other places of Scripture as well where the number of days, remember Ezekiel had to lay on one side for a number of days and then roll over to the other side for a number of days. And, and God was making that day-for-year correspondence uh, so as to teach the doctrine that he's teaching in these episodes. All right, so I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the men who Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and made all the congregation grumble. That's the thing. When you're the ringleader of a rebellion, when you're the communicator of a bad report, you're a mouthpiece for Satan as the adversary of God. You do encounter the stricter judgment. Even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive out of those men who went to spy out the land. All right, now, when God disciplines you, okay, two wrongs don't make a right. You can't undo what you did to, to spark that discipline. And, and here's what Israel's going to try to do. They're going to try to have a, a, uh, a change of heart. They're going to try to have a, a second chance. They say, oh, 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 we're, so we're sorry, we're sorry. We'll go conquer the land. We'll go do it. Too late. Absolutely too late. But they're going to attempt it. Okay. So when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. So it's like they get up early for the war. No, that was yesterday. Okay, too late. Too late. Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord? He said to depart. You're going to have 40 years of judgment. Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up. You will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. And so this is, you know, two wrongs making a double wrong, right? So when, when God wants you to do something and you don't do it, that's wrong. When God tells you not to do something, but then you insist, oh, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, that's wrong. Okay? Go through the doors he opens, and then don't try to go through the doors after he closes them. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you and you will fall by the sword. Inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly 
to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord, nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. So it was a terrible defeat. The Lord had instructed them to leave tomorrow for the wilderness of the Red Sea. In the morning they decided to go into the promised land after all. Moses warned them, don't do this. <laughs> Their actions were doomed to fail and he was right. He was absolutely right. You know, He gets to be the I told you so when they come back. For the handful of stragglers that did come back, I imagine. All right. Which gets us to chapter 15. Now this might seem odd. So we have the battle. They're defeated as far, beat down as far as Hormah. And then chapter 15. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving to you, Does that seem odd? Because he had just told them, get out of here. You're going to come back in 40 years. Okay, He said, go. But on the first day of their departure, what's he doing? He's teaching. I find this marvelous. He's reminding them that they will enter the land. When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you, make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or a freewill offering, or in your appointed times to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This sounds like Leviticus all over again. What are we doing here? (laughs) I thought we were done with Leviticus. I thought Leviticus was in the rearview mirror. All right, but see, here's the point. It's time, as God has handed over one generation, it's time to start hammering this next generation Get them grounded. Start today. Get them grounded soon. Get them grounded early and often and, and, and get, this, get this Levitical truth into them for the, the entire time they're in this wilderness. Okay? They've got to they've take this and they've got to process it themselves. I tell you, this is something that, that impressed me uh, in my youth, something I try to impress upon um, our teenagers here in, in uh, recognizing at that generational accountability that uh, that you gotta you gotta decide for yourself. Are you li- are you living the faith rest life, or you know is this just a tradition of your parents kind of thing? You're going to church because you want to, or your parents are telling you to. Are you walking your Christian walk before the Lord in your own generation? See, and it's huge. I think it's why a lot of um, kids end up getting confused when they get off to college. Because they never made it personal. They just they were growing up and it was their parents' pastor, their parents' church, their parents' Bible, their parents' faith or whatever. And then they get to college and uh, you know, they're told all of that's wrong. All of that is, 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 is mythology. All of that is not true. And, and all of their new professors of, of genius are telling them all about evolution and Big Bang and atheism and everything else. I think it's vital that we reach this next generation and get them to, to walk, to stand before the Lord and to process the doctrine in their own frame of reference, in their own study and understanding. So what happens here in chapter 15, the Lord begins His instructions for the subsequent generation, the wilderness generation. He's not talking to the people that are dead men walking. He's not telling them when they enter the land because they're not going to enter the land. He's talking to their children. He's talking to the ones that are under 20. He's having a teen class. I think it's kind of cool. When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you. All right, so the Lord presents Israel with. Now, some of these things are going to be in addition to what they already learned in Leviticus supplementary offerings to go with their other offerings. That's my title for it supplement offerings to go with their other offerings. Grain and drink offerings are over and above the sacrificial instructions presented to their parents. And so everything their parents got in Exodus and Leviticus, all those offerings, the, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the, all of that, now they're getting additional detail, supplementary gifts that go with that in terms of the drink offerings. Over and above. So, uh, make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or as a freewill offering for your appointed time to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock, the one who presents his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil. You shall prepare wine for the drink offering, one-fourth of a hin, and with each burnt offering for the sacrifice for each lamb. 
So a half a hen is basically half a gallon there if you want the equivalent on that. You shall prepare the wine for the drink offering, all right, for each lamb. Or for the ram, you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hen of oil. For the drink offering, you shall offer one-third of a hen of wine as a soothing aroma to the Lord. When you prepare a bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or for a peace offering to the Lord, then you shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-half of a hen of oil. You shall offer as the drink offering one-half of a hen of wine as an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each ox, for each ram, for each of the male lambs or the goats. According to the number you prepare, so you shall do for everyone according to their number. All who are native shall do these things in this manner in presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. All right, that gets us down through verse 13. Notice the alien was mentioned. I'm, I'm sorry, the native was mentioned in verse 13. Now the, nat- uh, the alien is mentioned in verse 14. So the Lord's giving instructions to the new generation concerning all these things. Um, the alien among them who desires to worship with them could do so exactly as they did. See, even though Israel was the chosen nation and they had the priesthood and they had the tabernacle and they had the offerings and they had the the uh, the high priest with the Urim and Thummim for discerning the will of God, they had the prophets for uh, speaking to the Lord and uh, calling upon the name of the Lord and uh, so forth. A Gentile could still choose to locate there, identify with them as the as the stewards, and be blessed. Be absolutely blessed. So uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? When among the nation of Israel, if an alien sojourns with you or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. All right, he can he can approach with a sacrifice as as a Jewish believer can, a Gentile believer can. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. So now, you know, if if, if an Egyptian wants to live like an Egyptian and and go live in Egypt and do whatever, then he's not under Mosaic law. He can live his Egyptian life in Egypt and, and, and so forth. But if he wants to identify with the Lord, if he wants to be a foreigner in the land of, he wants to sojourn among the, uh, the Jews in the land of Israel, he is allowed to do that, but he's got to abide by the, the Mosaic law. He's got to abide by the requirements while he's there. Only one statute, not a double standard. There is to be one law, one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. Okay, So he can't just go out there and violate the Sabbath and just do what he wants on the Saturday and say, well, hey, I'm an Egyptian. No, no. You are identifying with the people of God. You are choosing to sojourn in this land. If you want to be a pagan, go back to wherever and be a pagan. So that's the, uh, the issue there. Alright, verses 17 and following. More instructions. The Lord gives instructions to the new generation concerning, and this, you know, a lot of this is redundant, a lot of this is stuff that their parents had learned, but they've got to learn it now. And then they've got to realize now that, you know, um, it's a lot easier when you're a kid, you know, when your parents have to handle all the tough stuff and whatever, but now, you know, when, when when you grow up and you have to be an adult and do adult things, and, and now this, this generation's realizing, these kids are realizing that they're the ones that are going to be doing the conquering, you know, 40 years from now. They're the ones that are going to have to do it when, uh, when they get there. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where I bring you. I love that. Not if, but when. When. Then it shall be when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. They're going to get there and they're going to have a lot of food to plunder. They're going to have a harvest to reap that they didn't plant, they didn't sow. uh, But all of that land is going to be there for the taking. And when you do, when you do eat, you will lift up an offering to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering. The offering of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generations. And the word dough there 
Yeah, or coarse meal. Anyway, but the point is first fruits. The point is God gets the glory first and foremost. The, the, the fact is when you first begin to reap, God gets His first. It's the recognition. It's not last. It's not leftovers. It's not you know a human being saying, well, let me see how much I have. What do I need to get by? And then if I have any excess left over, I'll go ahead and throw a little bit at God. That's not what it's about. God gets the first fruits, and then you take it by faith that whatever is left, uh, God's going to be faithful. God's going to provide for you. So we have the first fruits emphasized there. Then we have national sin, the unintentional national sin, verses 22 through 26. And this has the same vocabulary we wrestled with before in the book of Leviticus about an unintentional sin. And I think the worst part about unintentional is the word unintentional, <laughs> okay? Because I think it conveys a lot to us today that is not what's contrasted in the Bible, okay? So the difference between, um, between it's not the willful defiant sin, it's the high-handed sin of, of deliberate conscious rebellion, Okay? That's what has no sin offering. The idea of, of these sins, the things that can be forgiven, things that can be provided for with a sin offering and a trespass offering. Uh, as I said before, the word unintentional is, is the biggest obstacle to, to this. And maybe it'll help us. Maybe it'll help us to break down, to, to do better studies on the sin nature. To understand the nature of what does it mean to be in Adam. What does it mean to have within us no good thing? Okay, And so Romans 6 and Romans 7, the New Testament is going to help us in that regard. And to realize that we may not do what we want to do because the Spirit sets its desire against the flesh and the, the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. That the flesh itself has a volition. The flesh itself has a will. And He sets His will against the, uh, the will of the Holy Spirit. And so then our volitional battle in our soul is, you know, choose you this day whom you will serve. Our, uh, we're going we're gonna to become slaves of obedience to the one that we submit, either the Holy Spirit or the flesh, okay? And so in so many ways, when we do submit to the flesh, we're doing the will of the flesh. It's, it's the, the, the sin nature's will, not our will. We go along with it, we submit to it, we agree to it, but it's the, it's the weakness of the flesh that we're submitting to. And uh, anyway, this is how Fruchtenbaum describes it. Arnold Fruchtenbaum describes it, that the weaknesses of the flesh, because we're sinners, we're, we're fallen beings in a fallen world, and, uh, and we encounter a temptation and we submit and we, we stumble in, in many portions in many ways, um, that, that those are the unwitting sins. The, the, uh, I forget the vocabulary on that. Anyway, we, we had some study on that. Oh yeah, the Shagah. Yeah, had those notes back in Leviticus, but here we are again. All right, when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses, even from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward through your generations, then it shall be, if done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bowl for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering. Again, notice this is corporate. This is a national sin. And in many cases it may be, uh, an un- it may be uh, a sin of omission. It may be one of just we didn't realize we had overlooked something and didn't do what it was we were supposed to be doing. Then the priest shall make atonement uh, for all the congregation of the sons of Israel. They will be forgiven, for it was an error. They have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. They missed the mark. The idea like uh, with uh, the New Testament, we talk about missing the mark. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them, for it happened to all the people through error. So we have unintentional national sin. We also have unintentional personal sin in verses 27 through 29. If one person sins unintentionally, then here's his offering. A one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. 
You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, this is the contrast, defiantly. And this is where I think we, in in our modern use of unintentional, um, this is where I think we, we, we miss the point. Okay? Because we're using the antonyms of unintentional versus intentional, right? And honestly, when I think back to my last 50 sins, I, I, I meant to do all 50 of them, right? As far as what I intend to do, I made the volitional choices I made. The, the, neither Leviticus nor Numbers or anywhere we're looking at, at the unintentional, it's not contrasted with intentional, it's contrasted with defiant. It is the high hand of defiance. So it's not just a cognition issue. It's not just a, 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 an aspect of volition and choosing to do it. <coughs> it's more than choosing to do it. It's um, the defiance. The attitude of rebellion and defiance. So uh, that person is blaspheming the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among his people. There is no sin offering for that sacrifice. He has despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be upon him. (coughs) And so here, the issue is this willful, defiant sin. This is not one that's coming in response to the sin nature. This is the one that's coming from your own soul of rebellion. You're in the driver's seat. Your sin nature is happy to go along with it, but you're the one that's driving this rebellion. And that is the high-handed defiant sin that uh, does not have a sin offering. All right. Well, if we encounter that subject again in future books, and every time we hit it, we maybe learn a little bit more, a little bit more. Still, it's, uh, it's a difficult concept. All right, verses 32 through 36. During this time of instruction, there was a man found breaking the Sabbath. You would think, <laughs> again, uh, you would think that with all these other examples of, of discipline, with uh, remember when the fire was, was hitting the outskirts of the camp, or remember when the plague just struck down 10 dead spies, or they'd have all these examples, and they're, they're right in the aftermath of the, of the Kadesh Barnea judgment, whereby um, they're told that their parents aren't going to enter into the promised land. And uh, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron, to all the congregation, they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Well, ought to be a no-brainer. Why hadn't it been declared? Who was he? What tribe was he in? Why, well, why bring this to Moses? It should be self-evident. So the Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones just as the Lord had commanded Moses. See, he's not getting around. They already had the Ten Commandments. They already had the law. They already had the penalties assigned. They've already had the doctrine that they were given in Exodus, in Leviticus. By the time uh, we're, we're post-Kadesh Barnea at this point, there's really no excuses. And so the example is set. Finally then, verses 37 through 41. The Lord commanded Israel to wear tassels on the corners of their garments for memorials of His law. All right, and they still do this to this day. Jewish people to this day have this as a feature of their wardrobe, as a feature of their, their, uh, their clothing. And it comes down to what was revealed here. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. So this is what they're expected to do. And uh, it's not our culture, it's not what we do. I think I've worn a tassel once in my life and it was on a graduation cap that, you know, you move from one side to another. Um, But they were to wear these daily. This was a part of their daily routine, these tassels. 
Put on the tassels of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. See, it's a visible reminder that they are different. A visible reminder that the Jewish people are not like the Gentiles. They have a different diet, they have a different wardrobe, they have a different... Everything is different, right? And, and circumcision is not as visible on a daily basis, but these tassels hanging off your clothes, uh, you, you'll see those, and, uh, and they will be the reminders. And the reminders for you of these commands. So, uh, look at the tassel and remember all the commandment of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart, after your own eyes, after which you played the harlot so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Every time those tassels, uh, you know, they, they remind you who you are and who God is. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. And so we have it there. All right, we do have a few minutes still, so let's take an opportunity for something like this. You're doing your study, and um, and it's three o'clock in the morning, and you don't want to wake up your pastor and ask him uh, about the tassel. So the good thing is you have your own Logos Bible software uh, installation, and you can right-click on the word tassel and say, I don't know what a tassel is. What is this? Okay, Realizing when you right-click the word, you're going to get menus. You're going to get menus upon menus upon menus. Just with a single right click. And um, somebody the other day asked me, he said uh, that, that they have a Mac and they don't have a right click. I said, well, I'll pray for you. <laughs> but I guess you can do a double tap. You can do something like that. There, there is, or tap and hold or something. There. Yeah, okay. Anyway. Right-click the word tassels, and you're going to see all of this information is embedded in that one word. You know, when you're just looking at it on the screen, it looks like a word. But when you right-click it, you see there is so much that's been embedded into that. And uh, the metadata that's been encoded to that word right there. And really, you see there's two columns. Understand that you, you read these columns from left to right. And uh, this, this menu here on the right is going to change depending on what you have selected here on the left. So what we have selected on the left right at the moment is the, uh, the Hebrew lemma right there, the Hebrew lemma of uh, tzitzith. Say that five times fast. Tzitzith. T-S-I-T-S-I-T-H. Tzitzith. Okay, that's the Hebrew word for tassel. And... Um, because that's what's selected there on the left, then these menu options over here, they are what they are. Okay. Now if you change the selection on the left, if you say, well, I don't really care about the Hebrew, I want to know, you know, I want to come down here to the thing. So I, I see the sense is tassel or the, um, the object there. What is this fringe thing? What is this tassel? Why is it called a tassel? Why is it called a fringe? What is this thing? So notice when I select that, what happened on the right? The menu option changed on the right. And you can always tell uh, because of the top item there, it tells you thing, fringe. And that's going to match what's on the left. When I had the lemma selected, it'll tell you on the right, lemma tzitzith. Okay, you can even select the reference. Numbers 1538. When you select the reference on the left, your options of things change on the right. Because you can do different things with the verses than you can do with words or what you can do with things. So, with um, the fringe thing, let's pull it up in the fact book. You can, um, you'll notice down below you're going to have a list of dictionaries and, lexic uh, and encyclopedias and resources. Um, those are going to be structured according to your preferences, according to the ones you pr uh, promote, the ones that you use the most, the ones that you prefer. You can prefer certain resources and they will always be at the top of your list. 
and then even the resources you don't promote, you don't prefer, they will naturally work their way up the list the more often you, you open those resources. Because Logos is spying on you. Everything you read, it remembers what you read and it promotes those items. And the ones you haven't opened in ages, it puts those further down the list. Logos figures out, you know what? You, you're not fond of, of this commentary, I'll, you know, this Pentecostal uh, dictionary or whatever, and you, it puts it down the list and says that's not your interest. Alright, so let's pull up a fact book on Fringe and we'll relax about the fact that the word was tassel, the fact book is on Fringe, we see that the fact book is, it has several synonyms that lumps into the same heading, the same category. Because a tassel is connected to the fringe, or it is the fringe of, uh, of a garment. All right, so this is, the, this is the fact book for tassels, or fringe. The uh, key article from the Lexham Bible Dictionary, you all have that in your, in your collection. And you have a snippet of it there. You can uh, click it if you want to to open the entire article, or just read the snippet. The next panel shows you media. You might have some slides, you might have some presentations, you might have some pictures. If there's a picture there, that's kind of fun to look at. So there is, and notice the blue, there are the tassels. Mostly white strings, but there is the thread of blue that goes through there, connected to some kind of a shawl or some kind of a I can't tell what that is, some cloth. You can see the Hebrew writing there on the the blue, some of the artwork. Anyway, this is a set of tzitzioth with blue tekelet, blue tekelet thread. That's the description of the picture. I'm sorry? Oh, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The forelock of hair when they braid the the uh, sideburns? Yeah. Also in the uh, fact book, you've got the key passages, starting with Numbers 15. Look at that. It's where we are tonight. Verses 37 through 41, but also Deuteronomy 22, 20, uh, 22 12 talks about making tassels. <clears throat> Matthew 9, 20 <coughs> A woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him, that's behind Jesus, and touched the fringe of his cloak. What was she grabbing when she was coming up behind him? She was probably touching these very tassels that we're looking at tonight. In, in, uh, in, uh, do you think Jesus had these tassels? I suspect he did. He was born under the law. He was, he was um, faithful in his duties. So that's Matthew chapter 9, uh, Mark 14. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. As many as he touched were cured. Matthew 23. Ah, this was a rebuke. Jesus was rebuking the pride of the Pharisees and how they do all their deeds to be noticed by men for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. And you can imagine how prideful they would be comparing the, uh, you know, my tassels are longer than your tassels, or whatever, you know, whatever. Um, ooh, look at him, look at his tassels, he must be extra holy. Whatever the case there. You also have uh, Greek terms, Hebrew terms, different events, like Jesus heals the bleeding woman, biblical senses, collection of your dictionaries that have articles on there. And by the way, if, if the article, do you ever, you know, go to, walk over to your shelf, pull a book down, uh, flip through the, uh, the pages, try to find your article, and then, oh, there, this, uh, this dictionary doesn't even have an article on tassels. And so you just wasted a trip to your shelf, and you go and you put it back on the shelf. Well, Logos keeps you from that. Logos is not going to show you a Bible dictionary that doesn't have an article on tassels because your fact book is giving you a, a report on tassels. So the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia, the Lexham Bible Dictionary, the Isby uh, Hastings and his uh, Dictionary of the Bible, New Bible Dictionary, Kenneth Kitchen and the article there. You'll start to develop a sense, the more you do this, you'll start to develop a sense for 
uh, the different dictionaries and the authors and, and where they're approaching these things from, and you'll, you'll start to develop your own favorites as well. But I would encourage you, um, particularly in the Lexham Bible Dictionary, don't be shocked if you start spotting names that you recognize, because some of these are names of guys we know, uh, guys, scholars and pastors and, and uh, authors that are in our particular camp. Titus Kennedy has several articles in the, in the Lexham Bible Dictionary. So you'll, uh, you'll be able to spot it in uh, various studies. All right. Well, that wraps up day 64. So when we come back, uh, we will handle day 65, 66, 67, 68. That'll be our Sunday. And uh, just keep on going. This completes nine weeks. Nine weeks down and uh, 43 more to go. Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, we give you the praise and the glory. We thank you for this time together tonight. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, uh, I do pray that we would be mindful. Uh, We may not necessarily be sewing tassels on our garments, but Father, we do want to be mindful of the commands that we're under. We we do want to have whatever memory aids we can for Bible verses, for Scripture memory, for other uh, disciplines of meditating our way through the Scriptures. Maybe Maybe it'll be a list of chapter titles or it'll be just uh, maybe just the, the walkthrough itself becomes the, uh, the memory device by which we can keep straight in our mind the, the uh, format of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So in all these things, Father, we thank you that we can study to show ourselves approved. And we're not learning it all tonight. We're not learning it all this year. But we're learning the framework that we can uh, hang the rest of our life on as we study a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. So Father, we give you the praise and the glory. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.